that's the one thing that sets our species apart. We have a curiosity. They say cats have a curiosity. No, we have a real curiosity. Every day, whether you're Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, or Charles, or Walter, or whatever, and that curiosity has led to our creativity. My guest today is Walter Isaacson. Walter is a best-selling author of biographies on Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and Henry Kissinger. His latest book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Duwanda's Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. In the book, Isaacson writes about how Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Duwanda and her colleagues launched a revolution that will allow us to cure diseases, fend off viruses, and have healthier babies. I recently sat down with Walter and we talked about the ethics of gene editing, how he goes about choosing who to write about, and what he hopes readers would get out of each of his biographies. Walter, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for the past couple of weeks since I knew you were on the show. And I want to tell you, big fans in the Mizrahi household, I surveyed my kids. Everyone has seemed to have read one of your huge biographies. Well, thank you, Charles. Boy, it's great to be on your show. All right. So, Walter, you've written biographies on the dead and the living. You've written on Kissinger. Franklin, Einstein, Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, and now Jennifer Doudna? Doudna? Doudna. Doudna. Right. Uh, before we get into any of them specifically, how do you pick, out of all the people in history, uh, dead or alive, how do you pick the ones that you're going to write about, and how do you immerse yourself in every aspect of their life? Well, I like writing about creativity, who has it, how it happens, how you can nurture it. And you and I have known a lot of smart people in our lives. And after a while, we realize smart people, they're a dime a dozen. You know, they don't always amount to much. What matters is being creative, being able to think out of the box, being able, as Steve Jobs would say, to think different. And so those are the type of people I'm looking for. And those people often are able to be curious about a wide variety of disciplines, whether it's Leonardo da Vinci or Benjamin Franklin, they like art and anatomy. You know, they like math, they like music. Uh, they love the humanities and the sciences. Steve Jobs, whenever he launched a product, which are the intersection of the two street signs, the arts and engineer and technology, and he'd say, that's where we stand because that's where creativity happens. And so those are usually the criteria I look for. And then because I like writing about people who are curious, I tend to want to pick subjects I'm curious about myself. And so that's why I picked Jennifer Dowden in The Codebreaker, this new book, because I became deeply curious about the life sciences and about health and medicine and biotech. And that was before COVID struck. And certainly after COVID struck, we all became more interested in that. Why did you pick Kissinger as your first? What year was Kissinger? Oh, Kissinger was back when I was just coming out of college working at Time Magazine. And what had happened is a close friend of mine and I, Evan Thomas, we had written a book called The Wise Man about six friends and how they helped shape America's Cold War policy. And it ends with Vietnam, uh, you know, the Vietnam War. And I wanted to continue it. 
And I felt that Kissinger had had a lot of books that were very favorable and a lot of books that were very unfavorable. I wanted to try to write a fair and straightforward biography of how he did balance of power diplomacy. And he gave you access? You're, you're a young student. At the, you, how old were you at the time you wrote that? Uh, I was in my 20s. And yeah, you know, uh, it was a topic that was very interesting to him, meaning himself. So, but how does that come? Is some guy calls him up, a 20-some-odd-year-old kid, and says, you know, I want to write a biography about you. And he says, yeah, sure. Or is there more to no, it? No, I mean, I told him I wanted to write a biography of him. He had read The Wise Man. I was at time, and I was very young. But still, he, you know, small media world there at Time magazine. He really does like, you know, to talk about his career, but also... Uh, you know, he talks to journalists quite a bit, famous for doing so. We had people uh, we knew mutually, meaning Hugh Seide, who worked at Time magazine with me. And I think initially he said, well, fine, if you want to do a biography, go ahead. I'm not trying sure to have much time to help you. But then as he kept hearing about the people I was calling and the things I was, you know, researching and reporting, uh, I used to go over to his apartment at Riverhouse and have breakfast, which is not my favorite meal but spend a lot of time while he explained things to me. So you, you, you know, I, what I find fascinating, we'll talk about Steve Jobs in just a minute. You not only wrote about these people as a, as a, you know, from a distance, you got really up close and personal. That's one of the lucky things in my life, having been a journalist and maybe just having like you, a personality that's interested and curious in people. People like to talk. I learned that when I first was working for the Times-Picayune in New Orleans as, you know, as a high school summer job, and you'd have to interview people. No matter how young you are, they like to talk. And so I became a little bit, uh, had that reporter's instincts. I could, you know, get uh, to people and uh, open them up, make sure they talked. And I was just very curious. I never had an agenda whether I was writing about Henry Kissinger or writing about Steve Jobs, I just wanted to listen and tell the story. And so uh, I've just been lucky. And of course, once you've written two or three books, I mean, what happened on Steve Jobs is I'd written about, uh, you know, many other people. And he called me up at one point and said, why don't you do me next? And I said, all right, yeah, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, and then you. Wait, wait, you hang, know, hang on, hang on. He called you out of the blue? You didn't know. You... Well, I had known him because at Time Magazine, where I had been the editor, and before that, uh, the back of book editor, you know, I had met him a few times, especially when early in 1984, when he had the original Mac, and I was a very junior writer at Time. I was the only one at Time who was using a computer. So when he came to meet the editors of Time, they had to invite me because I was the only one, you know, who knew how to use a personal computer. And so we got to know each other, and every he was my best friend every couple of years. Whenever he had a new product that came out, he'd call me up and say, you know, this is a great product. Only you will understand it. You know, you have to put it on the cover of Time magazine. We eat this at a sushi restaurant in lower Manhattan. And so at one point, I think, you know, in the early 2000s, he called me up and said, why don't you do my biography next? And I said, well, yes, yeah, Steve. OK, you know, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein. And I said, yeah, you know, it sounded a bit arrogant, but, uh, you know, you want to be next. I said, but why don't we wait 20 or 30 years until you retire? And then eventually I realized that he had called me right after he'd been diagnosed oh. with cancer. 
And if I was going to do it, I had to do it. And it would be a unique opportunity to get very up close with somebody who had transformed, you know, six or seven industries from personal computing to cell phones, to music, to retail stores, to digital animation, to, you know, personal devices. Uh, so I like uh, talking about how business and technology transforms our lives. And I realized it would be a unique opportunity. Wow. So I want to go back to Henry Kissinger for just a minute, just so I can get it in my mind. You're in your 20s. You're having breakfast over his house with your, I guess, maybe you brought a laptop. I don't know if you had a laptop in those days. I doubt it. Maybe just your yellow pads and your pens or whatever is taking notes. So you're sitting with one of the most powerful, influential guys in the world who has a vast amount of knowledge and history. And you're sitting there and he's eating scrambled eggs and you're having coffee and you guys are just chatting about things? Am I getting that right? Well, uh, I wasn't wasting his time. I'd say, all right, let's uh, talk about the Vietnam negotiations now or detente with Russia. And we would go step by step through the various parts of his career, including the parts that were problematic, like the secret bombing of Cambodia or the involvement in Chile and the uh, U.S. involvement in Chile during the Allende mm -hmm. uh, period. Um, and, you know, he very much wanted to explain himself and would explain uh, why uh, the Paris Peace Accords fell apart at one point and you had to do the, what he said, the Christmas bombing. And it was clear I wasn't fully agreeing with him, but I think that made him only more eager uh, to push and to try to make sure that I saw all of his uh, sides. Uh, I don't think he was that pleased um, at first when the book came out because it's favorable in parts and critical in parts. Uh, but I certainly tried to get everything accurate and to quote him accurately and, you know, to show exactly what he thought. The book was about him, not about my opinions. And when you sat down with him, did he basically say, look, anything you want, there's nothing off limits? Or did he section off saying, I don't want you to talk about my childhood in Germany, or I don't want to talk about my relationship with my father? Did he, was there anything that was out of bounds? No, no. In fact, his childhood in Germany, uh, wanting to live up to his father. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> it begins, my book begins with... Um, uh, him uh, packing up as a young teenager while the Nazi mm -hmm. Gestapo troops or uh, police are in his apartment. As they're leaving Germany, they're being able to leave Germany, which was lucky for them. And, and young Henry Kissinger saying to the Gestapo, someday I'll be back. And of course, he comes back with the American expedition, the forces, yeah. uh, after D-Day, and is there with the occupying forces in his hometown of Germany. Wow, that's fascinating. So do you like pinch yourself when you, when you were going there and said, I can't believe that this guy is telling me all these things? Like he's talking about well, the bombing of Cambodia. A, it's, 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 that's wild stuff. It's a, one of the good things about being a journalist is that I still can't believe after whatever it's been, 40 years in the trade, that I get paid money <laughs> to ask interesting and smart people about things I'm curious about. And whether it's Henry Kissinger or Steve Jobs or, you know, people I've written about who are alive 
or uh, Jennifer Doudna, you know, who has done the most transformative discovery of our lifetime, which is how to edit human genes. You know, I pinch myself all the time, as we all should, as you should, as, you know, your kids should, as I assume most of our listeners should, pinch ourselves to say, you know, we ought to wake up every morning with a bit of gratitude and a bit of humility because, you know, we've been able to lead uh, lives that are better than most people in this planet for most of human history. You feel like when you're writing these books that, uh, especially of the dead, let's say Ben Franklin uh, or Einstein, that you have an awesome responsibility to get it right because they can't, they're not there to defend themselves. And the, you know, because you're, a, you're an accomplished author, you're well-known, you're a celebrity in that sense, uh, um, what you put out there is going to be treated as gospel. Well, I do try to get it right, and I try to check all the facts, and I try to make sure that if I make a judgment or if I say something, I make sure to include uh, especially the subject's point of view and do that in a way <clears throat> that makes sure that the subject will come out okay. Uh, with Steve Jobs, as you know, in the last year of his life, I spent a lot of time in Palo Alto uh, talking to him. And near the end, I read him the last two chapters of my book. I hadn't yet finished it, but I said, here's the judgments I'm making. And I allowed him to push back on some. And even though I kept my own judgments, I quoted, as you'll see in the last couple of chapters of that book, him saying, well, no, here's the way I see it. So I feel there's an absolute uh, necessity to be fair. I will, though, say that history is not done with just one layer on the canvas or one, you know, painter doing the brush strokes. After I've written about Steve Jobs and after I've written about Kissinger and Einstein and Franklin and probably even Jennifer Doudna, other people come along and they add their own brush strokes to the canvas of history. And there have been books about uh, Henry Kissinger that were far less favorable than mine. And I just read Martin, End you know, uh, upcoming book by Martin Endick, uh, that's very favorable about the way he did the Middle East peace process. Uh, there have been quite a few books on Steve Jobs that paint a slightly different picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd try to get mine right, but if people don't agree with it, I kind of say, you know, there are a lot of other books too. You should read more than one book. So Walter, I, I know I know you're going to give me the end. You're, gonna, you're such a nice guy and you're an honest man. I get that sense from you just speaking with you the few times that we've spoken. Why, when I'm reading... Ben Franklin or Albert Einstein, your, your biography, and I've read other biographies uh, about them. Why, why do I feel so comfortable with yours? Comfortable in the sense that I'm not struggling. I don't feel that you have an ax to grind. It, you're standing there as, as a third party, as really just the facts. You're like Sergeant Friday, just the facts. And you're not really throwing your, I guess I'm answering my own question. I don't even need you for this one, but I'm just saying, why, is that something you really work towards and you're cognizant of? Yeah. When I was growing up in Louisiana, I had a mentor, uh, Walker Percy, who's a great novelist. He wrote the movie goer. Um, and he once said to me when I told him I wanted to become a writer, he said, there are two types of people who come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. And he said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got too many preachers. So a lot of journalists these days feel they're supposed to advocate and preach. 
I feel I'm supposed to give you my opinions every now and then or make judgments when there's conflicting facts. But I feel that the main thing I'm supposed to do is tell you the story so you can form your own opinions. And so I'm glad I'm, I'm uh, flattered you said what you did. But what I try to do is take the reader hand in hand. And I say, we're going to go on a journey of discovery together. And I'm going to be totally honest about where I got my information. There's in none of my books, is there any anonymous quote ever, including the Kissinger book, including the Steve Jobs book. I'm going to be open and transparent of where my information came from. Every now and then I'm going to tell you, here's how I assess the situation, but I'm going to make it clear that it's only my opinion. And I'm going to give you some pushback from some others who might see it differently. But mainly I do it as a narrative storytelling. I'm not trying to prove a point. I'm trying to say, let me tell you a story. Yeah, you know, for those of you who've never read one of Walter's books, uh, you definitely pick up one which resonates. Their title, res- their, the subject resonates with you because it's really a treat. It's, it's your re- it sounds almost like a novel. And I just find that reading, you can say I'm a big fan and I'm not trying to be uh, partial here, but I'm, I'm just telling you, when I'm reading your books, uh, it's enjoyable in the sense that you're learning so much, not only about the subject, but about the whole context of their times, of their scientific discoveries, of the human side of them. I, I think the human side that you are able to uh, really write about in a way which makes it approachable. Like, wow, that could be me. I felt the same way, Einstein. I can't believe I was reading some parts. I said, yeah, I, I definitely feel that. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of being a biographer is to show how the personal interrelates and, you know, connects to the accomplishments. And even with Einstein, understanding who he was personally, how he dealt with his father, how he dealt with Maleva Marriage, his first wife, also ties into the story of how he makes a leap about um, figuring out what it would be like to ride alongside a light beam and catch up with it. And what would happen if you traveled at the speed of light? And I think whether it's Steve Jobs or Jennifer Doudna or Henry Kissinger, the personal experiences connect to the accomplishments you make in this world. Mm-hmm. I want to hold off on Jennifer down until the end because I think, you know, just my opinion of it, just briefing through the book, I didn't read that book extensively because I got a little too late when I found you on the show, but uh, I found it a little different than your other books. And you'll tell me maybe if I'm off on that or maybe it was done that way. But um, I, out of Kissinger, Franklin, Einstein, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Jobs, which one, and maybe not say your favorite, but which one did you walk away and said, wow, I really learned a lot? Well, I uh, learned a lot from Jennifer Doudna because I didn't know enough about uh, life, about nature, about, you know, I know a lot about molecules. I grew up in the Steve Jobs era, so I know how to program a, mo- a microchip But now it's like, whoa, we have to learn how to program a molecule because that's how we're going to make our new vaccines. That's how we're going to, you know, edit our own DNA and that of our children. So that was a holy cow experience. And it was easier, frankly, than uh, general relativity, the math of which is still daunting. With with Jennifer Downer's book, Codebreaker, which I want to talk about in just a moment because it was fascinating stuff of what's the possibilities of that are, it's just, it's, it's the hair on the back of my neck goes up. It's so crazy. Uh, 
did you have a scientific background or you learned all this on the go with her? Well, I love science. And my father was an engineer. My uncle was a scientist. My brother's an engineer. So I love science and I grew up doing science. I wish I had, and I studied some science, uh, biology and physics and computers uh, in college. I wish I was a more professional scientist. On the other hand, the fact that I have to learn it from scratch, uh, I think makes me perhaps better at conveying it in a way that's simple enough that those who have not studied biology or physics can understand gene editing or, for that matter, Einstein. So I throw myself into the science. When I did Jennifer Doudna, I figured, okay, we're talking about editing human genes. Well, I got to do that myself. So I spent time in the lab with two graduate students teaching me how to edit our own DNA, how to edit the cells of a human. Um, so I did it. Uh, now, when you read the book, you're not going to have to go through all the biology of it because I try to make it into just a story that an average reader can uh, appreciate. But in order to do that, it's helpful for me to dig down in the science, so I appreciate it more deeply. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st annual Trust Barometer, published by Edelman Research, shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. Let's go look at, let's go right to code breakers because um, there's no getting around that. That was a, it seems to be a sea change in terms of a little different than everything that you've written. It seems that there's a little, yeah, I don't know, when I started reading parts of it, it seems you have a, you had a lot of enthusiasm towards this. You're really excited about this. Uh, even in the pictures in, in the book, you have you're in the lab and you're smiling. It's uh, you're you're really psyched. You know, am I right or wrong on that? Am I picking something you up? You know, if you look, in fact, look right behind me, right there yeah. and on top of that picture, and you see this. Well, you can only see it. We're not doing a yeah. visual show. But that's the double helix, James Watson's book about the discovery of the structure of DNA. Mm -hmm. I found it because my book on Jennifer Doudna begins when her dad leaves the double helix on her bed when she's in middle school. And she realizes it's a detective story, a mystery about life that has all sorts of clues. And how do you unravel the mysteries of how we work, how our bodies work, how we fight off diseases, how we fight viruses. So I went back and searched through all my bookshelves and I found that my father, 
and when I was 16 years old, I opened it up and there's my little scroll really? of a 16 year old. Wow. When he get, and I, all the things I underlined, like words I didn't understand, like biochemistry. So I, uh, I found that book and I realized that the mysteries of life is something I've always been interested in. I mean, there's something profoundly joyful about understanding how something works, especially when that something is ourselves. Yeah, it, I, I want to tell you, um, I, I'm not a science guy. And, sci you know, when I read um, Einstein, uh, you did, by the way, you did a great job with the math. You made it very uh, palpable. Uh, Only you, one equation, and yeah, actually two equations. In yeah, the it was, so I, I, MC squared, and one that even I don't understand, which is the mathematical expression of general relativity. Something that, I said, right. You don't have to understand it, but here it is. Right. It's 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 good. I, I I wasn't. You know. By the way, it didn't slow down the story at all, which was great. Instead of going off and explaining the math, you just touched it and just went on. But with Jennifer Down, the first of all, how did you find her? Out of out of a when, when did you find her? Well, about uh, six or seven years ago, having, you know, finished, I was finishing up Leonardo da Vinci, and I was looking for a way to do the revolution in biology, because I had done the revolution in information tech, you know, the digital revolution in infotech. And it was like, okay, the next big one is life sciences, you know, editing our genes and making vaccines out of genetic coding, and just like we've been doing. And so I looked around, and there's all sorts of people in this book. There's George Church of Harvard and the wonderful Fong Zhang of MIT. And, uh, you know, there's Emmanuel Charpentier uh, from Europe. And I met all of them. But the more time I spent with Jennifer Doudna, um, who I met at an Aspen conference, I invited her when I worked at the Aspen Institute, and I realized that as a young graduate student, she had helped figure out the structure of RNA. And then she used the ideas about the structure of RNA to help figure out how this gene editing tool known as CRISPR works. And then she got this horrible dream nightmare that somebody wanted to learn about it, and it was Adolf Hitler. So she gets in the forefront of figuring out the policy and ethical issues of gene editing. And then she turns her attention to coronavirus. So I said, she's the main character. She's the person I want to follow. And when do you start writing the book? Well, I started writing the book about three years ago after I had spent three years of research but about a year and a half ago, as every listener will remember, uh, suddenly we all got shut down by COVID. And I told my publisher, all right, I'm not going to turn it in now. I'm going to wait another year or so uh, because I'm going to, this changes the story somewhat. So the last, uh, you know, 20% of the book is about Jennifer Dowden and the fellow scientists in the book. Uh, turning their attention to fighting the coronavirus. Then, of course, she wins a Nobel Prize right in the middle of that. And so finally, the book has a big ending, which is them discovering ways to fight coronavirus, the creation of vaccines based on RNA, this wonderful molecule that was, you know, her hero and my hero in the book. And um, so I took an extra year or so, and that's why the book came out uh, just a couple months ago. Well, it's perfect timing. You know, you you had you everything just lined up for this one, right? So you COVID came. Uh, you had access to labs. You could stand right beside these people. Everyone had a lot more time on their hands. The clock was ticking down. Uh, as you're watching this in real time. You're like watching a basketball game, and you got there in the first quarter. 
And I hope that the part of the book that does that reads that way, because I wrote it as if we were watching it unfold in real time. So it's not simply a history of going into the Wayback Machine and asking people, what did you do that day? You know, what did you do when you discovered this? It was like a play-by-play in my notebook of how they were discovering ways to fight the coronavirus. When you go and interview these people and, and learn the biographies, do you actually take a notebook and pen and, and write, or you have a laptop? How yeah. do you do it? I mean, I, no, I, I sometimes have a tape recorder for doing an official interview, but generally I have a pen and paper. And, um, you know, paper's a great technology. It's got a long battery life, infinite almost. And uh, as I know from reading Leonardo da Vinci's uh, notebooks, even after 500 years, you know, they're still intact. The operating system, you don't have to figure out how to boot it up. So I keep, I keep a lot of notes on paper. You started in, in uh, The Codebreaker, part one, The Origins of Life. You quote Genesis chapter two, uh, verses eight and nine. The Lord God made a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had made out of the ground. The Lord ceased, caused to grow every tree that is beautiful and good for tree of life. Why did you start with that? And read the next line, which is oh, also the tree of the life tree in the of midst knowledge. of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, the good Lord or nature or nature's God were able to create over the past three and a half billion years lots of species. But he created one particular, or she or he created one particular species that worships at the tree of knowledge and also has to understand the nature of good and evil. And that's what this book is about. It's about being curious about the most important uh, discovery of our time, which is how to edit our own genes. Wait, t- well, let me interrupt you. Could you just touch upon that? We're taking that for granted that we all know what that is. Tell me why, uh, if I came from Mars, what does that mean to edit genes and what are the benefits thereof? Yeah, well, every species on this planet for three billion years has been subject to evolution that, you know, comes randomly and often haphazardly. Now, one species, and it happens to be us, has the talent and the temerity to say, I've invented a little tool that can take my own DNA or the DNA of other humans and change it. And that's wonderful because we've already used it to fix the mutation that causes sickle cell anemia or other blood diseases or blindness, and we're using it to fight cancer. But it also needs to be part of the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because we will now be able to hack our own evolution, unlike any other species ever. We'll be able to say, let's design our children. And people will be able to say, I want my kid to be taller, maybe, or have a bigger muscle mass maybe to have blood that carries more oxygen because I want her or him to be a sprinter. Maybe even we'll be able to affect memory or for that matter, mental processing power. Certainly we'll be able to affect things like hair color and eye color. And already somebody's made inheritable edits, meaning edits in an early stage embryo that are now part of the human species because they'll be inherited that, um, try to take out the receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. That was done in China in an unauthorized way. Well, after this coronavirus thing, maybe we'll become a species that edits our genes to be less susceptible to viruses. But you can see 
that this is something that we have to take a breath and pause and say, what are the implications of letting rich people buy better jeans for their kids? What are the implications of editing out the diversity in our species? Do we even want to edit out deafness and blindness? Do we want to edit out, um, you know, some of the things that make us a diverse species? So these are moral questions that the scientists aren't going to answer for us. I want you to read the book and understand the potential of gene editing because it's going to be people like you and me and our listeners who and their children who are going to have to say, all right, when should we authorize this? What should we use it for? Should we use it to fight sickle cell? Yeah, probably. And Huntington's and Tay-Sachs and uh, cystic fibrosis? I think most people would say yes. Should we use it to fight depression? Should we use it to fight schizophrenia? Should we use it to fight, uh, you know, for somebody to have better blood oxygen levels? I go step by step in the book, uh, case by case, hand in hand with the reader to say, let's think this through together. And I'm going to spoil some sales of the book. There's no last chapter that says, here's the answers, because it's a slippery slope and we have to do it step by step and cautiously to be less slippery. But I say, you know, there's not an easy set of answers I'm going to give you. I'm just going to help join you on the journey as we all think this through. We become godlike in a sense. We're able to re-engineer what has not been re-engineered for 100,000 plus years. Yeah, it's like Prometheus on the winged hound of Zeus snatching fire from the gods. We've now snatched fire from the gods. And like Prometheus, we have to be somewhat careful how we use it. Or to get back to uh, that quotation you did earlier, we're like Adam and Eve, and we've bitten into the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And now we have to understand not only the tree of knowledge, but of good and evil. Yeah, the, the, the layups are Alzheimer's, ALS, sickle cell, blindness, deafness. But there's a flip side to all of them. What about the caring and the sympathy that certain people, it just, it just brings out their personality and to do good and to care about those less fortunate we create a, a race of super people who never get yeah. these sicknesses, who never get any of these things. I'm not saying that they're good or bad. I'm not trying to draw that, uh, uh, be that well, yeah, bold. You're right. I mean, Michael Sandel talks about empathy when he you know, is a Harvard philosopher. But an even more interesting philosopher, perhaps, in my book is David Sanchez. He's a 17-year-old kid who loves playing basketball, except for when he doubles over in pain in the middle of the court because he has sickle cell. And so they tell him at Stanford where he's being treated, you know, we may be able to edit your genes now and your reproductive cells, your sperm, so that your children won't have sickle cell. And at first he says, that's great. And then he says, well, maybe we should let it be up to my kids after they're born to decide. And you say, why? And he says, just what you said, Charles, empathy. Having sickle cell taught me empathy. It's taught me to care about others. It shaped my character. It taught me how to get up off the floor and persist. And then I asked him a few months later, you know, I said, David, um, would you really want your kids to be born with sickle cell if we could edit it out? He said, no, I've decided I would like to have my kids edited so they aren't born with sickle cell. And I said, well, what about the empathy? He said, I'd try real hard to teach them empathy, but I don't want them to feel the pain that I feel. I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying it's good that he had first thoughts 
second thoughts, third thoughts, even about something so simple as sickle cell, because I think we all have to have first and second and third thoughts as we um, discuss this. Yeah, you know, um, I'm just thinking of, of, you know, Alzheimer's, for example, how when a parent or loved one gets it, a whole ecosystem, if you will, of family become, they become different. They start caring and speaking and, and, and there's so much sympathy and appreciation of life and appreciation of, 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 of memory and of family. I'm not saying, God forbid, anyone should have this. I'm just saying that you, you bring up a lot of great philosophical points of initially say, of course, let's get rid of all these things. But there's a price, there's something we pay for that as a, as, as a yes, species. But before we go too far down that road, let us remember that as a species, we have, over the centuries, found wonderful ways to make ourselves healthier. We have found everything from inoculations and vaccines to pasteurizing things to uh, figuring out how to fight polio and uh, smallpox, measles, smallpox, uh, measles, and also, yeah. you know, antiseptic. And of course, we should use all of our talents in order to make ourselves and our children healthier. Every species on this planet uses every trick in their playbook in order to survive and produce healthy offspring. So I think it's a good thing. And it's a great thing that things like sickle cell, taste sacks, hunting tins, I get, and I, I can almost I'll pull out my phone and show, show it, but we aren't on the air. I get three or four a day emails after I've written this book. After people tell me, let's worry about the ethical issues. Maybe we shouldn't go so fast down this path. But then I get the emails. And I got one this morning. I'm still choked up about a picture of a wonderful family, uh, parents and their two boys. And the four-year-old boy has, uh, I think, Angleton syndrome or something, a single uh, you know, gene mutation. That means he won't be able to walk. That he's going, and he said, my kid's going to die soon. Can't you get me in touch with the scientists who could save him? And I get it. I got one about somebody's granddaughter, picture of her in the swimming pool saying, they say she's not going to live more than another three years. Can you, is there some hope here? So we have to say, yes, I'm not sure we want to edit out everything in our species, but we should go down this with some clear eyed hope that is going to make us healthier. You know, it's also the arrogance of me or someone saying it. We should think about it. Who is not afflicted or has it doesn't have a family member. If it's your kid, your wife, uh, your spouse, who has it? Boy, oh boy, you want this yesterday. Leave the Precisely. ethical questions I've alone. I've been to a lot of bioethics panels where they have all sorts of religious leaders and people from, you know, whatever communities and doctors and scientists. And I say, we're the parents of patients. We're the parents of the 12-year-old or the four-year-old girl or boy. Uh, they should be on this panel as well. Wow. Great. What's your next book? Don't know yet. I really don't. I'm, in fact, in about an hour, I'm talking to some people trying to figure it out. Uh, it'll be about somebody who has a wide ranging curiosity, who's taking on the great technologies and science of our time, who probably has a type of curiosity that is interested in everything from the humanities to technology and the sciences, because that's the field I like to plow, because all of us can be that way. We can all be more curious about more subjects, just like I became curious about health sciences and biology. And I think 
that's the one thing that sets our species apart. We have a curiosity. They say cats have a curiosity. No, we have a real curiosity every day, whether you're Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, or Charles, or Walter, or whatever. And that curiosity has led to our creativity. You know, uh, you know, you look. You, I guess you're looking for Renaissance men uh, or people, Renaissance yeah. people, I should say. Well, that's why Leonardo da Vinci, because yeah. he was the definition of the yeah, Renaissance. You know, you know I just he, he's asking the same question of why is the sky blue? You know, and one exactly. is just and and, and Einstein asked. Uh, yeah. Also, I mean, I walked, took a walk today. We finally had a nice blue sky, and I see the blue sky most days, but I forget to ask why is it blue. It's not all that difficult, but Leonardo has it in his notebook, and he sprays mists of water and purified water. First to figure to it figure out. out. And mm. Einstein has it. He's using Lord Rayleigh's formula to try to diffract light. Now, we're not going to do all those science experiments, but every time you look at the blue sky, you ought to be a little curious. Why is it blue? And then maybe go home and do a Google, uh, Google search because everything in life is interesting. You know, I remember reading about Richard Feynman, great physicist, 20th century, and uh, his, his curiosity was sparked, he said, by my parents. They would always ask me why. They, they, I'm sorry, when I would ask why questions, they would always answer. And he would always say, uh, um, and continually ask, and what do most parents do? Enough. Stop asking silly questions. Yeah. And here it was constant. You know, for example, in, in, um, in, when I went to yeshiva, where we learned Talmud, uh, the answer wasn't so important at times. It was the question. You had to have a sharp question. And that's a great way to culminate a discussion like this because all of us can nurture curiosity in ourselves and even more importantly, we can nurture it in children. You see that all the time of people walking with the kid and the kid's like, why does the duck have webbed feet? Or why? And the grown-up says, quit asking so many uh, stupid questions. Don't do that. Yeah, they keep asking questions. Outstanding. The great Walter Isaacson. Walter, I want to thank you for your time. I, I, I could speak to you for hours. I just find it so fascinating that you've given us a gift. You spent countless hours writing, rewriting, getting your facts right. So even though your books, for many people, I look at a book and I say, wow, it's over six, 700 pages. I love it because there's going to be so much information in there. And you pack your books with each. Who's your long, what's your longest book? Is it uh, Leonardo? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, Steve Jobs, Leonardo, um, I think Einstein, they all clock in uh, at about six, 500 pages. 500 but so. I hope they read like storytelling. I hope they don't read. I hope they speed along because they're supposed to be detective stories. Yeah, well, Leonardo, journeys of discovery. Leonardo, what I liked about it is you put a, great, a bunch of great pictures in there, really great diagrams. Well, he deserves the credit for the pictures. Wow, wow, wow. Walter, thank he, you so much. Continued you, success. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.